Well, let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help in what can be a difficult text. We pray we would see the goodness of it, believe it, and be helped by it to live for your glory. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you feel when life's really hard and there's nothing you can do about it? Especially when life's hard because it's unfair. When your circumstances are the result of some injustice done against you and there's nothing you can do about it. What does that do for your relationship with God? Or for how you think about him. What's your response to God in those kinds of circumstances? Well, God responds by speaking. But it's only comforting if you belong to him and trust him. The book of Nahum speaks to the world that we live in. And to everyone here today, but it doesn't speak to everyone in the same way. My hope, though, is is that after we study this book, we'll find comfort in Christ. And we'll be strengthened by His Spirit in the hardest and most confusing of times. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Nahum, chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 829. It's 829. You might need those numbers because who knows where Nahum is. <laughs> and, if, and, if you're, and if you're new, if you're new to the chapters, the smaller ones are the verses. And again, today we're looking at all of chapter 1. Now, many of us may have no idea of, of what Nahum's about. It's a small book, hard to find, rarely preached, rarely read. Maybe because at first glance, this book is all doom and gloom. And yet Nahum means comfort. It's a book of reassurance for God's people. To understand that, let me just set the biblical context, and I want to go way back to set the biblical context here. After our first parents rebelled against God, the whole world fell under the curse of sin and death. But God made a promise to Abraham that through one of his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. Well, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and through Jacob came the nation of Israel. And then one day God made another promise to the king of Israel, David. And he told him, one of your descendants will come and he will rule over God's people forever in peace and blessing. But then after David's son Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. He had the the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. 
Well, that northern kingdom, Israel, rebels against God in really horrible and evil ways. And so God graciously warns them many times through the prophets. That's much of the Old Testament. Just warning them, repent. Because if you don't, I'm going to raise up a a foreign nation that will be an instrument of my justice. Well, that nation that would come and be God's instrument of justice to the northern kingdom of Israel is the Assyrians. And in 722 BC, they conquer Israel. Many are killed. Many are sent into exile. Now, Judah, that southern kingdom in the south, they watched this happen and more. Assyria was this bloodthirsty nation that advanced their kingdom all the way down to Egypt, just taking out city by city along the coasts, and they were brutal. I'll spare you the details of their brutality, but they were exactly what Stalin aspired to be. They were famous for completely demolishing whatever city they conquered, and the survivors they would take as slaves, or they would leave to be repopulated with people from from other conquered cities. And that way, this city that they just conquered would never be ruled by the same people again. Now again, the southern kingdom of Judah watches this happen because they're in the hill country, sort of less prioritized by Assyria. And so, as they stand up on the hills, looking out into the world to the coastlands, they're watching the Assyrian dominance rise like the floodwaters coming towards them, closing in on Jerusalem as it sits up on the hills. The Assyrian records tell us that more than 50 cities of Judah were destroyed. They've seen the, and heard the worst kind of human torture. And they know they're next. That's the context in which Nahum prophesies. He's in Judah, and evil Assyria is coming for them, and they're helpless. There's nothing that they in themselves can do about their circumstances. So how are they tempted to think and feel about God. They're supposedly his people. What does this mean for his promises, for his relationship with them? Well, God speaks. And he speaks a word of comfort. And that comfort comes through judgment of his enemies. It's not usually where we look to find comfort from God. You know, just interview someone on the street and ask them to finish this sentence. Kind, find comfort in God, God's love. Find comfort in God's grace, God's provision. But here God speak in Nahum chapter 1 and find comfort in God's vengeance. That's the purpose of the book and chapter 1 as it sets itself out. Find comfort in God's vengeance. And if you're going to do that, there are three implicit exhortations in our text. First, fear the Lord. This is in verses 1 through 6. 
Fear the Lord. Second, trust the Lord. It's in verses 7 through 13. Trust the Lord. And third, be on the right side of the Lord. Be on the right side of the Lord. That's in verses 14 through 15. So, fear, trust, and be on the right side of the Lord. So first, fear the Lord. Look at verse 1. The pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. This is the title of the book. It's the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the the mighty capital of Assyria. And Nahum the Elkishite is the prophet with a word from the Lord. And this word is for God's people about their enemies. That's important if you're going to read this book rightly. It's a message for God's people, but its content concerns their enemies, which are God's enemies. And it begins with the statement about the Lord. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in, in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. Now, I realize you may be here, uh, and that's a, a surprising description of God for, to you. And I understand if this doesn't feel right to us, or if it doesn't sound right to us, Uh, Oprah Winfrey actually says this description of God is why she rejected Christianity. She said, my God isn't jealous. But before we do that, let's just consider jealousy. You could define it as a strong desire for something someone else has or something you don't have. And since we're all sinners, it's really hard to think about jealousy apart from envy. Our desires for what we don't have are often unfounded and usually selfish. And so those selfish desires usually manifest themselves in in sinful acts. And so most of the time we shouldn't be jealous when we are jealous. You know, having a a sports car or a big house isn't some God-given right. You know, so if he gives it to someone else, you shouldn't be jealous about that. It's wrong for you to be jealous of something that's not, that's not rightfully yours. You should be happy for somebody else if God gave them that. But I hope my wife is jealous for my exclusive love in marriage, as I am for hers. And again, I realize that when we think about the, the jealous spouse, uh, we sometimes think of bad examples. You know, we might think of the controlling or angry spouse that flips out over nothing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the legit jealousy for my covenant love for her. The the kind that keeps our marriage bed pure. Because I don't belong to any other woman. I'm hers. She's mine. If she's not jealous for me, then it's because she doesn't really care about our marriage. Yeah, fine. Go be with somebody else doesn't bother me. Okay, well, no one wants that in a marriage. We we want to be loved. A godly jealousy, then, protects the marriage. A a, a jealous husband will, will nourish and cherish his wife as a good gift from God. 
And so he'll fight porn. He'll run from temptation because he's jealous for the marriage. So think of a godly jealousy as a zeal for the right thing. You know, if you've, if you've ever locked up your, your, your car, when you've got out of your car and you've got valuables inside of it and you locked the car door, you did that because you were jealous for the valuables in it. You didn't want someone else to have it. And that's a, that's a right desire. It belongs to you. Well, jealousy is entirely appropriate and good for God. Everyone needs to work harder and better to contemplate the jealousy of God. We, we should do that and then praise God and give thanks that He's a jealous God. We need and want God to be first and foremost zealous for His glory because He has tied His glory to our salvation. He's made covenant promises to us. But if we're pursuing our joy in other places and things as if they're greater than God, well, then we ought to fear God as a jealous God. And that's consistent with his love. For God to be love, he must entirely be devoted to all that's right and good. And people are created in his image for his glory. And they say, you're not going to get it, God. I'm going to give glory to created things. And I will live for myself and the things of this world because I believe that's better than you. That is giving God or God's glory that's rightfully His to other things. So God is right to be jealous for glory that's exclusive to Him. In love... God, the Son, and Spirit can't bear for the Father's glory to be offended. The Father and the Spirit can't bear for the Son to be wronged. The Father and the Son won't tolerate the rejection of the Spirit. These are evils that can't be overlooked because they offend the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So in his zeal for what's right, God will right all wrongs. A jealous God takes vengeance on his enemies. And all that's just to say, God is right in his jealousy for exclusive worship. Just like a marriage is right to be jealous for exclusive love. So let that sit on you for more than just this hour today. Meditate on it. And let every prideful and self-righteous objection to God's judgment just die in silence. To be loving, truly loving, first and foremost depends on love for himself, which means he must hate every manifestation of evil that contradicts him in the world. And yet, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. God's anger isn't like the explosive rocket that in a moment from from silence to explosion to blast off. No, God's anger is more like a steam engine that's pulling a train of cars to its capacity. It takes a long time for it to get going. The Lord is slow to anger. 
His patience is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond human comprehension. On the smallest of human infractions, we're all ready to retaliate. When we see evil like we did this last week in Texas, we hear people attack God and the uselessness of prayer because God doesn't act in judgment at the speed we want. He's slow to anger. If you've seen someone love, you love, sinned against, and hurt, you know the goodness of doing something about it that's appropriate to the offense. Vengeance is consistent with a good God, but it's not the first impulse of his heart. He's slow to anger. He's supreme in his patience. And this aspect of God which was revealed to Moses was a comfort for many years of rebellion to them. The fact that he was slow to anger. His patience gave them second and third and fourth and many more chances to repent. But when Assyria became the instrument by which God's people were punished, his same patience with this evil people was confusing. They're looking around at their circumstances, watching Assyria take control of the world, and they're saying, has God forgotten us? And the answer is no, through Nahum. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. That's a reference to God's revelation of himself in Exodus 34. Except... Nahum leaves out the part about God forgiving wickedness and sin purposely at this point. God had actually sent Jonah to Nineveh about a hundred years earlier so that they could repent. And they did for a time. But whatever repentance they had didn't last. And so a jealous God is no longer being patient with people who are flirting with sin. He will not leave spiritual adulterers unpunished. Listen, people who just count on God's mercy as a given because they just figure it's God's job to forgive have no idea how prejudiced they are towards themselves. Like the racist bigot who thinks way too highly of themselves in comparison to another human being. We're totally blind to how ugly our sin is in the sight of a holy God. And so we judge him for being angry with us, while we have very little patience for others over much lesser offenses. But the truth is, while God is slow to anger, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. So don't misinterpret God's patience as indifference. Just because he delays his wrath doesn't mean it isn't coming. If you sin in secret and life goes on the same for you, that should be of no comfort to you. God's love is great, but so is his sense of justice. He's a jealous and avenging God, and he will come in judgment with great power. Look at the second half of verse 3. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. 
He rebukes the sea and dries it up, and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord's pictured here as a divine warrior. And the powerful forces of nature are at his disposal. The people of the ancient Near East believed that the false god of Baal was the cloud rider. That he was the one in control of the weather. But Nahum says, no, it's Yahweh. It's the God who created the world and entered into a covenant relationship with his people that moves in the wind and storm. The clouds are but dust. The dust of his feet. He can create dry ground in the midst of the sea. A reference to the Exodus where the Egyptians were drowned, but Israel, his people, passed through safely. And mountains, these mighty structures of the earth which don't move, which are firm through the ages, and which represent kingdoms in the ancient Near East, they tremble and quake before him. And so will Assyria. The hills melt in God's presence. How much more should weak and rebellious people fear the Lord? I mean, what mere creature can endure God's wrath? In fact, the the picture that we have in these verses is a picture of decreation. In the same way that God created the heavens and the earth out of an overflow of His joy and love, in His wrath it all comes undone. Even the rocks shatter. Before him. So, who can endure his burning anger? Listen, the, the pride that would deny any guilt today, or the foolishness that would scoff at God's wrath, is like a tent that the human heart sets up as a shelter against God's coming storm of judgment. Self-righteous pride might make a creature feel safe, but it did nothing for Assyria, this mighty kingdom. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, and His power should be feared. Now again, this is hard to comprehend on multiple levels. We don't often hear of God portrayed in this way, and we're only dimly aware of the gravity of our own sin and the evil done against God. But just as it's possible for a cruel judge to pardon a criminal in the presence of victims, that's a cruel judge that would pardon someone like that. There's also a loving judge that punishes justly. God is that loving judge. And in a world where there's so much injustice, that's a comfort. There's no trial that will last forever. Not for God's people. And there's no act of injustice that will be overlooked. Because the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Judgment is coming. So, put yourself in the shoes of those standing on the hills of Judah. Hearing stories of brutality sweeping the coastlines. Receiving people into your country who have fled for their lives. 
beginning to see the smoke rising in distant villages where your own people live. That's your circumstances. Does God look like a bad God when you hear Nahum communicate his vision in chapter 1? I don't think so. In fact, I know so. Because whenever children are harmed, no one wants the law to turn a blind eye to the offender and do nothing. Especially if they're our children. We want a good government that punishes evil. Well, God sees what this evil nation is doing to his children. And his children are feeling it. And he speaks to Nahum a word of comfort. I'm a jealous God who takes vengeance and fierce wrath. We can look out on the world from the church and we can look around us and we can see horrible acts of evil taking place all over the world. And we might be tempted to question, God, where are you? What are you doing? Don't you care? And Nahum reminds us that God's delay in judgment isn't due to a lack of care. Because he's jealous for his own glory, and therefore he is zealous for his people. The only way to escape his judgment is to run to him for refuge. And that brings us to the second way to find comfort in God's vengeance. It's to trust him for it. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time. For they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard and like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. So Judah's world is full of distress. They're living under the the brutal threats of violence. But they get this word of reassurance. The Lord is a warrior taking vengeance in his fierce wrath. And that's part of what makes him good. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. That is such good news for Judah. You know, in general, the way that we deal with trials in life largely depends on our confidence in the outcome. So, you're diagnosed with cancer, but the doctor says it's treatable. You work under a harsh boss, but they're going to retire soon. The Assyrians are coming, but the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is good. He cares for those who take refuge in Him. And the reason for God's people to do that is all over this chapter. Verse 2, the Lord is. Verse 7, the Lord is. And in verses 12 and 14, the Lord speaks. And he speaks to his enemies and his people. Clearly, God is the main character of this book, and the Lord is his name. 
The Lord, in all caps, stands for the covenant name of God. This is the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and makes promises and keeps them. The God who rescued Israel when they were helpless and oppressed under Egypt, which was the most powerful nation at that time in the world. He rescued him. And he did that by destroying them. It was salvation through judgment. And after he had done that, he revealed himself as the Lord. The Lord. A compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. So as Nahum preaches this this word, as he makes this pronouncement about Nineveh and uses the name, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's a powerful reminder to God's people at this point that he sees them. He's not forgotten his promises. He's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. He cares about what happens in this world. And so he cares for his people And he will rescue them through judgment. In verse 8, just like in the days of Noah, an overwhelming flood of wrath will completely destroy Nineveh. And darkness will chase them like the ninth plague of Egypt. In verse 9, there's no plot against the Lord that will succeed. No chance of rebellion against God's people. Because in verses 10 through 11, his enemies will be consumed. Entangled in thorn. Drunks, drunk on God's wrath, burned up by his anger. Put your trust in God. Seek refuge in him. He's a fortress who can meet every need you have for safety. He's the storeroom of every good gift for life. From the forgiveness of sin to daily bread in every trial of life to the final day of judgment, God is a refuge. And He's a refuge from our greatest threat to life. He's a refuge from His own wrath for our sin. Do not build a tent of self-righteous pride and seek refuge in inaccurate versions of how good you are or how weak God's sense of justice is. Do not do that. Flee from God's wrath by running to His mercy. How do you do that? Through faith in Christ. Turn to Christ. Because in Him, God is a refuge for sinners. Because in Christ, God's mercy and justice meet. We deserve to suffer under God's wrath forever because of our rebellion against Him. We have done evil in God's sight and we should not remain unpunished. We are guilty. But God, in His rich love and mercy, has sent Jesus into this world to live a perfect life on our behalf. And on the cross, Jesus took on our sin and became the guilty. And so, God poured out His judgment on Jesus for us. And the earth quaked, and darkness covered the world, and Jesus died. The guilty 
we're not left unpunished in him. But God raised him from the dead to say that his wrath has been satisfied. He has rescued his people who trust in him through judgment. And so now he can just show mercy. It's just all grace to those who seek refuge in Christ. This is good news. This is a good God who is a refuge because he's also a jealous God who takes vengeance. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. And so even in your circumstances today, which are hard, you do not have to doubt God's love for you. The gospel is proof that God cares for you, even as a sinner. Now, I know the life circumstances represented in this room are many, and many are hard. But I especially want to speak to people in this room who have a hard time believing that God loves them or God cares about them because of the evil that's been done against them. There's a lot of pain in this world, and this room is not immune to it. And Nahum shows us that sometimes God's people have a hard go at life. And that includes all kinds of abuse. And I know there are people in this room that have felt that. Read Nahum for comfort. This is a book of consolation. Don't doubt God's love because the abuse happened. He hates it. Clearly, he's burning with anger because of what's been done to his people. And his promise to you is that he will not leave the guilty unpunished and he will make all things new. One day, he will wipe every tear away from your eyes, he will remove every pain, and he will restore everything that was lost. He is the God who sees and he hears your cry. And my prayer is that you'll experience his goodness towards you. And that you'll experience it in this church. That this place will be a refuge for sinners and for those that have been hurt by sinners. That the pastors and members here will be instruments of God's grace as we love and care for you. And especially as you hear the truth of what God has said in his word. Just look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. This is what the Lord says. Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. The mighty Assyrians were very secure in their power. In their circumstances, in their might, there was no threat to their well-being that they could see. As far as they could tell, they had nothing to worry about. But Nahum has a vision from the Lord, and this is what the Lord says. Those mighty Assyrians are nothing but a blade of grass to me. They will be mowed down. And even though God's people have suffered at the hands of the Assyrians for decades... In the second half of this verse, he tells them, I will lift the oppression that I allowed you to experience. 
He will break off the yoke of the Assyrians and free his people from oppression. All throughout this book, there's this close connection between the salvation of God's people and judgment of his enemies. Because the people who hate God also hate his people. But Nahum says that just as certain as the destruction is for God's enemies in light of God's great power, so is the safety for God's people who take refuge in him. He has great power. As helpless as God's enemies are before his power, so great is the help to those who trust him. Nahum teaches us that whenever the world fights with the church, they also fight with God. The church is the bride of Christ, and with all of her imperfections, she's still the treasure of his heart. So we can see, you know, regardless of what we see going on today and the fears that we might have of culture or the hostility that we might experience among family or friends, we can take comfort in this. The Lord is a warrior. He is mighty in power and battle, and he's with his people. That's the promise that Jesus himself gave us in Matthew 28, is that he would always be with us to the very end of the age. And so for that reason, church, don't be discouraged by your circumstances. Whatever they are, they won't last forever. Persevere in obedience and faith through a confident hope in the Lord. You know, the church may stand at the gates of hell right now and all of Satan's forces have been unleashed against it. Satan may deceive people into believing that Christians are bad for society. The whole country may adopt theories as facts that will bring the church into direct conflict with the government or church members into direct conflict with their family, Christians into direct conflict with friends or work. Countries may continue to ban Christians from preaching the gospel or even reading the Bible. But all of that will prove vain. Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. The various powers throughout history come and go, but this word stands forever. Our God is steadfast in his promises, and one way or another, he will make an end of his enemies, and it will be final and forever. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. I know this could be a hard word, but but you need to, to ask, where do I find safety in my circumstances? Where do I find safety before God? Is he someone you fear? Is death something you fear? Apart from Christ, you should. It's nothing to be proud of if you don't. I understand that you you might feel just fine. But on what grounds are you certain? Christians can lean on scripture, on historical events, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their own life and the life of the church throughout centuries. What do you lean on? To be certain that you have nothing to fear with God, nothing to fear in death.
I want to say that Christians love science. But, but science doesn't speak to what happens after you die. And it can't prove your sense of morality. God is a jealous God. He's a good God. And he'll judge his enemies. No one wants to live in a society where laws mean nothing because they're not enforced. We want peace and safety. And that's the good news of God's judgment. I just wonder if that sounds weird to you. The good news of God's judgment. Well, what if in the the wake of that horrifying news we heard earlier in the year when the Taliban was killing innocent people all over Afghanistan, a mighty group of warriors within Afghanistan rose up and completely wiped out that regime and suddenly we heard news of victory and promises of peace and respect for all people. Or what if in the wake of this shooting last week, we heard of some unquestionable, unobjectionable guarantee that this will never happen again? Wouldn't that be good news? That's what God guarantees for His people through judgment. Peace for the world, peace in a perfect world, is coming through His vengeance. So that when it's all said and done, You need to be on the right side of God. And that brings us to the final way to find comfort in God's vengeance. Be on the right side of God. Verse 14. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Verse 14 is an order of destruction. Verse 15 is a call for celebration. It's one or the other for each one of us. The coming judgment in verse 14 has God's jealousy for his glory written all over it. Because it narrows in on the king of Assyria, who not only set himself up against God, but he led the nation to worship its idols. The Lord will avenge his own name, saying, I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Now, maybe you've been listening to this this morning, and you think, okay, sure, I understand that the really bad people, like like Hitler, or maybe serial killers, in order for God to be good, I can see how they would need to be judged. Really bad people should be judged. But where's the line? It sounds like determining really bad is somewhat subjective. So who's guilty of sin that's deserving to be punished by God? I think with our biased view as sinners, that's a line that you and I can't define. But God can, and He does, by His objective standard of his own holiness. And this is what he says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 All, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has gone their own way. Isaiah 53.6 There is no one righteous, not even one. Psalm 3.10 When it comes to being in God's presence, the purity of his holiness 
His own faithfulness to what is good and right, his holy standard, means that he must punish every act of evil, great or small, according to what it deserves. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards once explained what makes one crime worse than another. He said it all depends on how great the obligations are to do the opposite, and that depends on the value and honor of the one being offended. You know, so it's, it's one thing for, for kids to talk back to their friends. It's another thing to talk back to their mother. It's one thing for an adult to punch another adult on the street. It's another thing to attack the President of the United States. And the scary thing is, is we've all rebelled against our Creator, who is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous and good. We have provoked that God to jealousy because we all have idols like Assyria. We might not call them that, but the Assyrian gods were simply the means by which the Assyrians thought that they could secure power and safety and wealth. And I think we all have things like that. Is there anything you're trusting in that will give you safety? That will make you happy like those gods did for Assyria? People trust in all sorts of things. We trust in money. Some people trust in government or a business. Some people trust in some relationship. And we give those things that we trust in our unquestioned obedience and service insofar that they keep working for us. Those are false gods and their promises are illusions. And your faith in them is foolish for you and offensive to God. He alone is God. He is alone your refuge. And he alone is your judge. Whether or not you're on the right side of history depends on whether or not you're on the right side of God. In the end, the only opinion that will matter is in verse 14. It's God's declaration. For you are contemptible. The incredible hubris of people is that we all think our opinion is the one that matters most. And so if we think we're a good person... And that's our judgment, and so and so is a good person, and that's how I see it. Or if we don't think we deserve God's judgment, we believe it either won't be the case, or God's wrong. But the truth is, the only opinion that's accurate and matters is God's. You should align your life with his word so that at the end of history, you're on the right side of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and he does. There was no one more mighty than the Assyrians. And they were completely destroyed. Prophesied ahead of time by this obscure prophet in little Judah. Recorded for us in history. An ancient Greek historian actually tells us that nothing was left after Nineveh fell to Babylon. In fact, it it tells us that the Assyrian king had burned to ashes himself. That happened. And for those in Nahum's day, that was good news. Verse 15. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. 
Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Nahum's quoting Isaiah 52, 7, where Isaiah is exploding with the good news of salvation. Now, what's interesting here is that Isaiah was looking to the future, talking about the destruction of Babylon. Because eventually, Babylon will come for Judah, because Judah also falls into sin. And Isaiah is saying, hey, Babylon will fall, and God will rescue you through that judgment. But Nahum is taking Isaiah's prophecy about future Babylon, and he's applying it to Nineveh. Why does he do that? Or how can he do that? It's because ultimately this is about the way that God always deals with his enemies and his people. He brings down the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's both a warning and a promise. So be on the right side of that word. The announcement of good news comes on the heels of judgment. When God takes vengeance on his enemies. And so you can just picture a person running over the hills of Judah at this point, shouting victory. It's like, it's like the end of Star Wars, right? When the Death Star blows up, Palpatine's defeated, and then you see all these images of people all over the universe just celebrating because the empire's fallen. That's what's happening here. This is the good news of God's judgment. It's salvation. And God's calling for celebration. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows. In other words, rejoice in me. Rejoice in God, your Savior. Be happy in a jealous God who takes vengeance on his enemies. If that doesn't sound like good news to you, and you've never prayed or hoped for the day that will come when you experience vindication with God, if you've never longed for vindication, you might not be living the Christian life. Jesus said the world will hate you because of me. They will insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's hard to live as a Christian in a world that's in rebellion against God and under the curse of sin. If you're following Jesus, you will feel the good news that God is just and jealous. And he will vindicate his people on the last day. Part of the gospel that's sometimes overlooked is the victory over our enemies. The good news isn't just that you're forgiven. It's not just that you've been reconciled to God. That you were once an enemy and now a friend. The good news of the gospel is also that our enemies are defeated. You don't receive the life that you were made for apart from that victory. Sin must be defeated or we don't get the world we want. We don't become the people we want to be. Death must be defeated for true life. Satan must be defeated. And the announcement of good news in Isaiah... It's followed by the success of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death. Which guarantees that one day we will too. But that day hasn't yet fully come. And so the circumstances of this world for us may be much like Judas in Nahum's day. We can look around and we can see the that sin is just wreaking havoc on the world. Evil looks like it has the upper hand. There's nothing we can do about it. Death is coming for us. There's nothing we can do about that. 
And people who rebel against God, who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, are the majority in power. Throughout history, the true church has been persecuted all over the world. But Christ is coming again. God will save his people and judge his enemies. What does that mean for you? What will you do with that? The good news for Christians is that vindication is coming. It's as certain for us as it was for Judah and Assyria. So if you're a Christian, in whatever circumstances you're in, learn to rejoice in Christ and be content. Don't let what you see or feel make you believe a lie about God. He will never leave you or forsake you. He loves you. In fact, his jealousy for his own glory guarantees he'll take vengeance on all your enemies. But that reality should also make us humble and compassionate towards our enemies. Just because God is this way doesn't mean that we should walk out of the building today and raise our fists at the world. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. As far as it depends on you, you live at peace with everyone. Because the church ought to be clothed with compassion as people who were once enemies and now friends of God. So we should be like Paul, who uses Isaiah 52, 7, and we should go out to the world proclaiming peace. God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him through the victory of Jesus. How you respond to God in your circumstances depends on how you respond to this good news about God, who is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving wickedness, but a jealous God who takes vengeance, not leaving the guilty unpunished. What side of God are you on? Let's all look to Christ and let's pray. God, we pray that our feelings would not reflect our circumstances, but reflect the truth of your word. Help us to put our hope in you, that we might live for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.